Okay, today is November the 16th, 2010. Let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day of your grace. We thank you for the time that we had to spend with your faithful missionary, Armando. We pray for his wife, Sarah, that Sharon will have a uh, recovery from her health issues. We also pray that you will help us to focus entirely upon your mighty word this evening, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I've been told that there's going to be a memorial service for uh, Betty Thiem, who was the wife of uh, Colonel R.B. Thiem, Jr. She went to be with the Lord uh, November the 9th, 2010. And I was given a a poem that Mike Newland wrote uh, about her. It says, What grace she was remembering a great lady. And this is how this poem goes. What grace she was, what joy supreme, the regal lady, Mrs. Thien. What blessed life, what steady hand, what mighty force behind her man. So poised, so smart, she taught us, too, how God so loved both me and you. Why Jesus lived and why he died, and all those crafted prep school guides. I chose her row to sit each night and grew to love her warmth and light. Her easy laugh, her peaceful eyes, her humble soul was no surprise. And nightly in her aisle seat, she fixed the words in notes replete and latched the meaning they'd extol for doctrine soared in her great soul. She shared the genes of priestly men. Her father preached her first amen. Then soon she wed our colonel dear and bore the son now teaching here. And what from us did she request? She gave instead what she gave best, a kindly word, a winsome smile, a thoughtful thought, her gentle style. For all her life, as I recall, she served as mother to us all. In spirit, true, in lofty sway, a royal family kind of way. And as she passed and left her son, his heart was calmed with what she'd done. A life now filled with Christ above, still honored with the man she'd loved. And this is ended by saying, our Mrs. Betty theme entered heavenly bliss on November 9, 2010. And that was by Mike Newland. I, I never knew Mike Newland personally, but he was a professional basketball player. And I remember many years ago, the colonel gave him a, the honor of speaking at Baraka Church. I don't know if you've ever been there, but the, the pulpit is up kind of like on a prow of a ship. And... When he got up there, he was so tall, he had to, his elbows were up here because he was, he was so tall. Well, we, we thank Mike for that wonderful poem for her. She was always uh, in the shadows, just a very uh, feminine lady and a great support. And I know that she will be missed. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are concluding our doctrine of evil with my own personal list of examples of evil 
so that we can kind of get an idea in the real world the things that at least I perceive as being evil. And, <clears throat> excuse me, we've done, we've gone over most of these examples already, so all I'll do is just go through and list them until we get to the ones that I haven't gotten over, and I'll elaborate a little on those. Now, these are examples of evil. We have gun control. Child Protective Services snatching children away from parents for using corporal punishment, spanking, which is a doctrinal principle. Government-sponsored welfare, the women's liberation movement, hate crime legislation, acceptance and promotion of homosexuality, and all un biblical and unconstitutional governmental agencies, treaties, programs, regulations, and taxes. The media's liberal bias, preoccupation with trivial nonsense, and promotion of sexual degeneracy. Multiculturalism. School systems and teachers who advance evolution and promote anti-Christian worldviews. Promotion of racial Partiality in hyphenated Americans, examples, Afro-Americans, anti-Semitism, the KKK, the NAACP, and LULAC. Political correctness, this would be a, I gave an example here of a, a, a chair person, Native Americans, significant other, higher power, and assault weapons. I have in my briefcase, this is where we ended last time, by the way. Y'all remember it? I'll just run quickly through <laughs> this list of politically correct phrases for today. And I'm telling you again, these are not made up. People actually use these. If you're short, you're vertically challenged. And they no longer use anything that would have a connotation of one sex or the other. In other words, it's becoming more and more sexual, sexually neutered. Used to be a policeman or policewoman. Now they're law enforcement officers. A postman is a letter carrier. A meter, a meter maid is a parking enforcer. A waiter or a waitress is a food server. Uh, they, I don't have it on my list, but it used to be stewardesses. And now they're flight attendants. Used to be mankind, now it's humankind. Used to be a manhole, now it's a maintenance hole. Housewife is a domestic engineer. A pervert is sexually dysfunctional. A slut is suffering from a sex addiction. Ad addiction, that's the female. This is the one that was odd. A shoplifter is a cost of living adjustment specialist. So they're just specialists. White American is racially challenged. And a prostitute is a sex care provider. As Pastor Joe Griffin would say, we are committing verbicide every single day. Our language is being tainted so that we can be politically correct. Now I start where the, where the red is right here. These are some of the others that I have not gotten to yet. Televangelists who lie and prey upon, prey upon the ignorant populace for financial gain. This is you can go at any hour of the day on certain channels, and you can see this promoted uh, despicably so out in the open. And it's not just that they prey on the ignorant populace for financial gain, which they do, but they give essentially Christianity a black eye because you have people who are not fools. They may be unbelievers or they may be believers who are not really growing in grace and they see what is going on and they think, if this is Christianity, I want no part of it. And I don't blame them. I wouldn't either because they look like a bunch of fools. They look like they are non compass mentis as if they have lost control, which they have. 
And that's bad enough, but to exploit that and benefit financially off of it and to disparage and disgrace Christianity in such a fashion is, let me just put it this way, I am very glad I, would never, I will not be in their shoes because if they are believers, they will face Jesus Christ. The next thing are, is courts and judges who ignore the God-given rights of the people and I changed this on uh, my small notes, but not on this. I added, and ignore biblical principles. Because the law really, all law should be contingent upon God's law. And we find God's laws in the Bible, the principles of how we are to operate. And there are numerous passages that I didn't put here warning judges if, uh, to make decisions based on bribes and for their own personal gain. So that's another evil. Then you have food manufacturers who poison and adulterate food so they can make more money. I understand that we have agribusiness today. There's no more or there are very few small uh, family-owned farms. The food producers are usually mega businesses and they are huge. And I understand that they have to do certain things in order to provide enough food for this country as well as, well as uh, exporting it to other countries. But when they adulterate the food to the point that it has today and then try to deceive the people by marketing it as if it is natural and wholesome, I think falls in the category of evil. Because uh, you can look on a package, look on a box or a carton or whatever it may be, and you know what most people do? And I used to do this, and I still do it sometimes, but I, they'll have, if, it's, if it might be a, a dairy product, and they have a picture of a cow, it's a serene uh, picture on the front and, the, and the, the clouds are just floating by and there's a red barn in the back and it's talking about and I'll have natural on it. And people think, oh, that's just what I want. But they don't turn it around and read the in ingredients. The ingredients would appear that it came from a chemical factory. And what I'm saying is we are responsible and uh, for whatever we put into our bodies. And it's, it's better these days if you read the labels. But what I'm saying, that does not dismiss that there are people who are sacrificing the health of their fellow citizens in this country for another buck in order to make it either more presentable by putting colors in it or putting things in it. I, anyway, you, you get the point. That is another form of evil. Law firms and lawyers who use the threat of litigation to extort money from people and businesses. There is, if you go to most businesses and you talk to them, they have to factor in the lit litigation factor. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. I worked at a log home company one time and they had to do that. Part of their budgeting, in other words, when you're in this company, who they built log homes, they would have to take everything in consideration of their cost and then they would add in their profit percent and then they would present it to the people. And part of that cost was called a litigation factor. Not every one of those homes, of course, were litigated, but they had to factor in a percent for that because the, our, our, the people, this country, whatever you want to call it, is so litigious today. And it's not just that we are sue crazy, ready to sue anybody at the drop of a hat. Uh, you might fall down because you're clumsy, but if you're injured, the mentality today is somebody's going to pay. And there's always lawyers there that are going to take whatever case it may be. And when someone is awarded these, these awards, now in some cases it's legitimate, but in a lot of cases it's not. But whether it is or isn't, every time a company has to pay the legal bill, do you think that, they, that, the, that the company doesn't pass that on to us? 
as consumers. In the medical field, there are so many tests that are made that are unnecessary. And the reason that they are performed is to cover themselves from litigation. Now, people won't talk about this. Uh, it's it's a, not a very... Um, it's not a very pleasant subject. But when you talk to people in the know who make the decisions and figure budgets and, and come up with prices, whether it's for health care or whether it's for uh, groceries in the store, whatever it may be, this is certainly a factor that has to be considered. And I think that it's out of bounds. The corporate practice of using lobbyists to bribe politicians. I don't know how the lobbyist idea ever came about, but I don't think it should ever have gotten to, it's gotten to the point now to where lobbyists make more, some lobbyists make more than the president does. And they go in with huge sums of money and they dangle it in front of the eyes of politicians in order to supposedly just get their point across. But what most people don't know is, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a large percent of the bills that are put forth through Congress aren't even done by the uh, congressmen or even their committees. It's done by lobbyists who then just present it to them in a, in a package form. And, of course, they always have that carrot, dangling the carrot of more uh, money for their uh, re-election fund, that type of thing. I think that that falls under that same category. The Catholic Church's cover-up of priests who sexually abused children of their parishioners. I can't think of anything hardly that's more ghastly than that. That the that parents would send their children to uh, Catholic schools or to, to churches and have the very men that are supposed to be guiding these children and molding them in a Christian worldview and teaching them morality and all the other things, instead do these abominable atrocities upon these children. And then for the Catholic Church to try to cover it up to the tune of over a billion dollars, I think falls on the category of evil. Now, I'm sure there will be people who hear this that will say, he's a Catholic basher. No, I'm not a Catholic basher. I, I, I think that all of us should love Catholics. We should love Mormons. We should love Jehovah Witnesses. We should love the Muslims. All of them are people who are in darkness and lost. But I, I think that it's not wrong to speak out on giving examples of what's evil. And this is something that is extremely evil. That they, and what surprises me, I guess it shouldn't surprise me, but what really surprises me is that you look at the church's attendance, the Catholic church. The churches are still prospering. I would think that the people would leave the church in droves. And yet, that's not the case. And I think that goes back to where there are very few people today that are independent thinkers, especially when it comes to the spiritual realm. The idea is if, if the religion of my parents is good enough for them, then it's good enough for me. And that's about as deep as it goes. And if you ever question them about their spiritual life, if you ever question the ideology of the Catholic Church, they are highly offended and may go on the attack and they really don't even know what the Catholic Church, what the ideology is. That's, I think, part of this whole society, this whole doctrine of evil. Churches that use the purpose-driven marketing techniques to increase attendance. This also is huge. We're not, we're not talking about little small ripples on the pond. We're talking about mega changes in society itself. And there are hundreds of thousands of churches that have signed on to the purpose-driven ideology of worship. And it's totally void of true spirituality. It's all about marketing. It's about giving the people what they want and tickling ears. 
And there is a backlash. Now there are thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of, of believers who have gone that route and found how vacuous and empty it is, and now they are angry. They feel like they have been robbed. However, they made the decision to go to that church and stick with it even after it had become a marketing church. That's it. <laughs> uh, some of you might say, well, that's enough. Well, that's the short list. You may have your own list. All I try, here's a few examples of evil. And if I sat down and really thought about it, I could come up with this many more without too much of a problem. The reason I ended on these examples is because I want you to see through some of these examples, and maybe you could come up with some of your own, how pervasive evil is, and we should not be surprised, because we live in cosmos diabolicus. I heard... Uh, our, uh, our, our Armando, who was the, we had the pleasure of listening to him uh, the, the little bit of time he was able to come before church. Did you, anyone catch that, that word? He, he used that term, cosmos diabolicus, which means the devil's world. We live in the devil's world, and we should not expect it to be fair. We shouldn't expect it to be good. And the only thing is, if you're as old as I am, which most of you are, then you will, you will remember back in a better time when things have not degenerated to the point they are today. Same-sex marriages, the, the embracing and applauding of uh, homosexuality, uh, the whole thing is somewhat surprising. I know we live in the devil's world, but I didn't think that it would degenerate to this degree so fast in my lifetime. Did you? I have, we're going to continue now with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Came, that all came about because in verse 22 it says, we are to hold on to that which is good and shun that which is evil. And I thought, okay, if we're talking about evil, let's talk about it. Let's find out what it is and give all the ramifications we can. I've never taught that in detail. But down the way a bit, as I'm teaching uh, verse 23, you're going to find another perspective that was made in 1963 that, again, talks about how shocking it is, how things have changed from then until now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 the subject switches and changes now. We're off of the instructions that were given one by one. Remember, they were in the imperative mood. Do this, do this, do this. Now we have the benediction. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and your soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul ends with his instructions and starts the benediction. We're going to look at this first phrase in our scripture that is the God of peace. The God of peace. Paul used this phrase often in his epistles. It's also found in Romans 15:33, Romans 16:20, Philippians 4:9, 2 Corinthians 13:11 and 2 Thessalonians 3:16. So this is one of the favorite phrases of the apostle Paul is calling God, this is actually a title, the God of peace. The title, the God of peace, does not refer to peace on earth at the present time. We don't want to get anybody into thinking that when he says the God of peace, that he is referring to God making peace during our day because there is very little peace on our planet at the present time. I looked this up today. It says the the this, I got this from the Internet, and I have the website down below here. If you can <laughs> uh, just scratch that down real quick. Anyway, <laughs> this is what this uh, website said, because I was looking into how many wars are presently going on at the, at the present time. It says, how many, uh, how many wars are there in the world today? That's the question I posed, and, it, and on this website, it repeated the question. This is the answer. To be precise, or at least 
an estimate on the number of wars known to the UN. It's 134 from recognized states only. Recognized states means there are tribes and there are factions that are, are warring, but these are from official uh, recognized states or nations. There's 134 going on at the present time. I looked on another uh, website, and it was from uh, 1816 to 2005, and I would round it off today. It was approximately over 200-year period. There's been over 400 wars in a 200-year period. And that's what another website said. So my point is we are not living in the time of peace. God is not creating peace on the earth today. Why? Because we live in cosmos diabolicus. We live in the devil's world. God is allowing Satan to do his best or his worst so that when he returns, he's going to straighten the whole mess out. Now, this is to be expected because Jesus said in Matthew 24, 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. However, the war will be a thing of the past when Jesus returns to planet Earth. Isn't that be great? Talk about a war. When Jesus comes back, the fireworks are going to be at their max. It's going to take nothing less than the supreme power of the Lord Jesus Christ himself to stra straighten this whole planet up. And he's not going to be negotiating. There's not going to be committee meetings. There's going to be Jesus Christ and a sword coming out of his mouth, which is the word of God, that same word that created the universe, is going to take all those who are unbelievers, all those that are part of the evil, wicked system of planet Earth today, and they will be destroyed. They will be sent. All unbelievers are going to go to the compartment of Hades or Sheol that's called torments. And there they will awake their judgment at the great white throne judgment this is what this is the only thing that's going to straighten it out and it will take place and during the millennium during that thousand year reign of jesus christ there will be no more wars i doubt that there will even be rumors of wars now at the end of the millennium god is going to allow satan to be loosed from the abyss and he's going to foam on uh, foam in a revolution but that is at the end and it's only because god has allowed it as part of his plan until then, that is, until Christ returns, Lehman Strauss described the present state of affairs when he wrote an article in Bibliotheca Sacred Journal in 1963 entitled, Our Only Hope. And this is an excerpt from that article that I thought was really good. Remember, think back, 1963. What was going on then? One of the things that he's going to mention is the turmoil between the races. We had huge cities burning. There were huge race riots and uh, disruption. Communism was a, 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 a real threat to us at that time. Keep that in mind as we read this excerpt. He says, we are witnessing in this 20th century the collapse of civilization. It is obvious that we are advancing towards the end of the age. Science can offer no hope for the future blessing and security of humanity. But instead, it has produced devastating and deadly results which threaten to lead us towards a new dark age. The frightful uprisings among the races the almost unbelievable conquest of communism and the growing anti-religious philosophy throughout the world all spell out the fact that doom is certain. Remember in 1963, this was in the Vietnam War was raging. You had the hippie movement and there was very few people interested in anything that had to do with the church or Jesus Christ. And I can understand why he thought civilization was grinding to a halt because it sure seemed that way, didn't it? Now you can think, oh, well, we don't have those problems anymore. Well, always one problem will be replaced with another problem. 
I think we still have a communist threat. But today, it seems the, the, the most imperative issue of the day is terrorism. We didn't know back then that, that communism would be somewhat suppressed once the... We, we didn't know that the uh, Russia was... Or the Soviet Union, rather, was going to uh, implode. Uh, we didn't know that over a period of time that the races were going to uh, be able to live together more uh, in harmony than they were then. But always there's something that's going to be stirring the pot. There's always going to be issues and problems until Jesus Christ returns. So just because we don't have these same problems that he's talking about doesn't mean we, have, we don't have problems that are just as serious. He says, I can see no bright prospects through the efforts of man for the earth and its inhabitants. One ray of hope shines through the murky darkness of present world conditions, but that hope finds its application only to the believing children of God. You got that? We are the only ones that have a true hope, confidence. It is spelled out clearly by the apostle of Christ in their divinely inspired writings that set forth in the Bible. It was mentioned by Christ in John 14.3. Y'all remember John 14.3? If I go away, then I will return. So where I am, you will be also. We need to cling to that verse. This is our hope. Jesus Christ promised that He is coming back. That if I go away, by the way, is a first-class conditional clause, and it means, and I am. I am going away. But he's going to return so that where he is, we may be also. I don't care where it is. Do you? I don't care. When Christ comes back and he says, now I'm going to take you so-and-so, I'm not going to say, uh, can we take a vote on that? I don't think any of us are going to be doing that. We are going to be so awed by him and recognize his awesome power, his unbelievable beauty, his unfathomable grace, all we're going to do is want to be with him, period. should be that way now. So it was mentioned by Christ in John 14, 3, but it was given to the apostle Paul and Peter to expound on more fully. You see, all he did in John 14, very graciously and lovingly, he told his apostles, listen, I'm going to be leaving shortly. I mean, I'm not going on a trip here. I'm going vertical, and you won't see me for a, for a time. But I'm coming back. And they just, this, he, this is a promise. Is Jesus Christ God or is he not? If he lies, he is a liar and he's not God. But if he is God and he cannot lie, then he is coming back. And that should mean something to us. That is our hope. Without that, we have no hope. And even in a world that is so indescribably evil and wicked in which we live. I gave you that list, which is the short list. We can still rise above the mire and a, a, a set jaw... We set our jaw, and we have utter confidence that Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, things are going to be so much better, we can't even fathom what it's going to be like. That is our hope. And he, he, just, give the, he just said he's coming back. And then the Apostle Paul and Peter expanded on that more fully. We just saw that where? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When we recognize that in, the, in a moment, a twinkling of an eye, Jesus Christ is going to return. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who remain, y'all remember that? The Christian who studies the Bible is neither indifferent nor fearful concerning the future. Remember that verse I like so much? Talking about the, the spiritually mature believer is not afraid of evil tidings. He doesn't dread evil tidings. If there's anything in your soul, in your life right now, 
that you are dreading, then there is a chink in your spiritual armor. We don't want to suffer. Well, that's too, that's too bad. It's tough. We're going to suffer. All of us are going to Christ told us that we're going to suffer. But we don't have to dread it because of the promises. He's not going to test us beyond what we're able to endure. He's going to see us through it. So we're not indifferent to the things that are... It's not when we say that we're not dreading anything that's coming in our future. It's not that we're indifferent. We're not saying that we don't care what happens. Any rational person is going to care about their future. It's not that we're indifferent. It's just that we are not full of fear or dread. This time on earth is here and it's gone. This is the only time that we can suffer for Christ. We're not going to be suffering in our resurrection bodies. This is the only time that we can prove our mettle spiritually, demonstrate that we truly have faith in Jesus Christ. So we're not afraid of the future. Now, uh, again, the Christian who does what? Studies the Bible. This doesn't say just Christians, period. That's one reason I like this. Most Christians are just as worried and dread the future as much as any unbeliever. Do you realize that? Being a Christian is no antidote to that. We would say being a Christian with doctrine is a completely different story, and that's what he's saying. A Christian who studies his Bible is neither indifferent nor fearful, of, of uh, concerning the future, he is what? Hopeful. Hopeful. Do you hope that Christ returns? Is it more than a hope? The kind of hope that you have to win the lottery? Well, I hope so. I didn't mean that to be a pun. I have listened to worldly wise men, scientists, politicians, world leaders, and educators express themselves about the future. All of their hopes are clearly marked by an element of uncertainty. But the Christian hope has a positive and certain ring to it, the reason being that it is identified with the person work and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I thought that was worth passing on along to you because essentially what he's saying is our world is coming apart at the seams. It is unraveling. Uh, Armando said, when he was talking to us to, to this, this evening, he said, the columns that hold up our society are cracking. They're crumbling before our very eyes. But we don't dread any of this because our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only do we hope, have our hope in Him for our eternal destiny, we, uh, and we can tend to think of that being way out here. It might be close. It might be right here. But in our minds, it's kind of out there kind of far. But we don't always, we don't only, only have our confidence in Him in that regard. We are to have our confidence right here, right in this moment, and every moment that our heart is beating and we're taking breath, that's how He wants us to trust in Him and have that hope and trust in Him. The Thessalonians were at peace with God because they accepted the gospel. That's the first thing. If you haven't accepted the gospel, you're not at peace with God. There's a barrier. So they, were, they accepted the gospel and they were at peace with each other because of the doctrines that Paul had taught them. Armando said it so succinctly. He said, we live a supernatural life. We are to live a life that the unbeliever cannot even perceive. They can't even conceive the idea of living a life that we do because they are spiritually dead. They have no contact with the supernatural power. And so we can love each other. Now, we're all Christians here. We're all royal family. But that's no guarantee that we get along, is it? And if you don't learn how to tolerate one another, if you are not employing the doctrine of impersonal or unconditional love, 
then we won't get along any better than unbelievers do. In fact, I've seen unbelievers get along better than believers. Some of the most petty people on this planet are believers in Jesus Christ. And so these Thessalonians, he's, he's talking about the God of peace, they had peace with God because they had eternal security. They knew it. They were depending on it. But they also had peace with each other. They were a bunch of Christians just like us. They all had issues. They all had needs. They had to interact with each other. And they got their toes stepped on from time to time. If somebody in the group had B.O., what are you going to do? Are you going to ostracize that person? Are you going to start a little conspiracy and run them down? Nothing changes under the sun. We still have the same issues. But we also have the same power. We have the same Word and the same Holy Spirit. And we have the same promise that Jesus Christ is going to return. That is our hope as much as it was theirs. So, we have now the God of peace... The next phrase is, Himself sanctify you entirely. We have the Greek word for sanctify is hagiadzo. It's a verb and it's aorist active optative. This is a, in this verse, we, it's very unusual. I told Armando tonight, I said, uh, I'm studied right up to the last minute and when I'm studying time I'm oblivious to time and it just seems like the hours just are they just gone and I said I was guess what he said what I said there are two optative moods in this one verse and he said really where I said in first Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23 I can tell y'all are very impressed optative moods are rare Two in one verse. Okay. It means to consecrate as being set apart to God. The optative mood expresses something that is possible or a desire. The optative mood tells us a lot about what Paul is talking about here. One of the things that we're going to be able to tell, one of the hints, there's, there's several hints here, but one of the hints that he is talking about experiential, or you could call it progressive, spirituality, uh, sanctification, is the fact that it's in the optative mood. If it was talking about positional sanctification, it would not be in the optative mood. It would be impossible. Paul would be saying, I hope, I'm desiring, I'm wishing you to get something, but they already have it. And it cannot be removed. Now, that should be important to you as a believer. You have been sanctified in Christ. Nothing can change that. That's positional sanctification. But that's not what Paul is talking about here, and that's one of our clues. And I would challenge anyone anywhere on this planet to try to make that positional in the optative mood. You can't do it. But that's not the only reason. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So what does that tell us? It is God's will that we be what? Sanctified. But this word sanctification is not clear enough, is it, for us? I mean, because there's more than one kind of sanctification. There's at least three. Do you know what they are? Well, we'll, we'll get there. Some of you already know. You can just rattle them off just like that. The very next phase, now listen to this, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, he's telling us the will of God is your sanctification. He wants you to be sanctified. But then the very next phrase is something that we are to do, and that is to abstain from sexual immorality. Now what does that tell us? What do we have to do to be positionally sanctified? Believe in Jesus Christ, period, zero, nothing else, over and out. But now, this sanctification that he's given in 4.3, what kind is that? It has to be experiential. I saw, uh, I was reading a theological order to, uh, uh, article today, and I might even start calling it this. I like it. I like this term. 
He called it progressive sanctification. Experiential means you're, it's during our experience on earth, that's true. But if you call it progressive, you understand it's something that's ongoing and it progresses. Positional sanctification, boom, you're done. It's happened. You don't even, you don't even know it happened until maybe years later. You come to a Bible church and somebody says, well, you're positionally sanctified at the moment of salvation. Really? Well, I didn't feel it. It's not about feelings. <clears throat> so a believer must use his volition to submit to God's will to be experientially sanctified, which includes abstaining from sexual immorality. There's a lot more than that. But you understand when you're talking about being progressively sanctified, and when I use those terms, remember progressively is a synonym for experientially you are required to do something progressively and keep doing it. We can accomplish this only by utilizing the power that God makes available to us through the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, all I did was take this right here. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. All we're dealing with is sanctify here. And I went to another verse to show you it's God's will that we be sanctified. And I'm talking about experiential sanctification. Here you have the next part I have. The experiential or progressive sanctification is called putting on the new man in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. Or for you ladies, put on the new woman. It's not talking about getting a makeover. It's also called putting on the full armor of God in Ephesians 6:11. It's called putting on the Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 13:14. It's called putting on the new self who is being renewed. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10. You see these are all things that we must do. God expects us expects us to put on the new man. Put on the new self, who is what? Being renewed. How often do you have to be renewed? Once a day? Once a year? You know, some people, some, maybe they're even Christians, I don't know. They come to year twice, I mean, they come to church twice a year. Easter, Christmas. And they think, well... Get it into fall, I'm renewed, I'm good for six months. Christmas, boop, renewed again. Well, I don't think that's what this is talking about, do you? It is also God's will that all men be positionally sanctified by believing in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm talking about the other kind right now. What time do we have? Okay, we've got a few minutes. Y'all don't look at your watches? Y'all aren't supposed to know. That's why that clock is facing this way. <laughs> okay, I stand guilty. I was just talking out loud. I really wasn't asking you what time. That's one thing you can count on. I'm never going to ask you what time it is. That wasn't a question. It was just talking out loud. Okay, thinking out loud. All right. So what I'm trying to show you is don't get the idea that God doesn't care about the other kinds of sanctification. So we're going to look at another kind here. It's also God's will that all men be positionally sanctified by believing in Jesus Christ. And here's a few scriptures. 1 Timothy 2.4 God who desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of truth. All men to be saved. That is talking about eternal salvation in context. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is talking about positional sanctification. In a moment of time, permanently being set apart for blessing by God. Why? Because we have His righteousness and because we are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can change that. 
So we were talking about the experiential part, but I don't want you to get the idea, well, he doesn't care about the other kind. This just demonstrates that he does. Now, here's another reason that we know when it's talking about the, being the, the God of peace uh, himself sanctify you, that it's talking about experiential. Here's another reason. We know for certain that this phrase is not referring to positional sanctification, and then I have all these verses there that it's talking about these are examples of experiential sanctification. I better read these for those that are on the Internet that, that just hear this. It's Acts 26:18. 1 Corinthians 1.2, 1 Corinthians 6.11, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Hebrews 10.10, and Hebrews 10.14. Those are verses that are examples of experiential, or, or, um, excuse me, are referring to a positional sanctification. And that is uh, because God completed that in eternity. <coughs> Excuse me, those are talking about experiential sanctification. The way that sentence is worded, it throws me off a little. Because God completed that in eternity at the moment we accepted the gospel. No, I'll take it back. That's positional sanctification. I didn't word that very well. All those verses are positional. Um, furthermore, Paul would not express a desire for something that had already been accomplished. Why would he say he desires for us to be sanctified when we have already been Apparently sanctified positionally. And then we have uh, entirely, that would be a good place to end and start next time. See, is there any uh, announcements that I need to make before we close? Uh, the party is when? What is the Thursday? Let's see, December. Well, let me close and then I'll, I'll figure it out, okay? Uh, Father, thank you for this time you've given us to focus on your word and the precision of your word, the inerrancy. It is complete in every way. We thank you for it. We thank you that we don't have to do anything in order to help you out in the area of positional sanctification. However, we need all the help we can possibly get in order to be experientially or progressively sanctified. And this verse handles it beautifully. So we thank you for it and pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.